Welcome to Flourishing in Medicine, From Surviving to Thriving. I'm your host, Dr. Mick Krasner, and this podcast is being produced by MPRO with over 35 years of experience as a regional medical professional liability insurance carrier headquartered in New York State. MPRO has been dedicated to protecting New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, and Pennsylvania's physicians, healthcare facilities, and healthcare providers. MPRO has also led the industry in peer support activities, and this podcast is yet another way in which MPRO is supporting the needs of physicians. The goal of this podcast is to explore ways that we as health professionals, physicians, nurses, nurse practitioners, physician assistants, mental health providers, therapists, and others can truly flourish in the complex and challenging world of healthcare. This is our second podcast, and I'm very excited to share with you an interview with a colleague whom I know very well. He is a leader and a transformational force in helping physicians and other health professionals flourish. Ron Epstein is an internationally recognized physician, educator, researcher, and writer. He has published groundbreaking research into communication in medical settings and developed innovative educational programs that promote mindfulness, communication, and self-awareness. His over 300 scholarly articles and his book, Attending Medicine, Mindfulness, and Humanity, is the first book about mindfulness and medical practice written for patients, their families, and for doctors and other health-providing caregivers. It is a groundbreaking, intimate exploration of how doctors approach their work with patients. In this book, Ron describes how health professionals can flourish, build strong connections with patients and colleagues, optimize the care they provide, and become more resilient. Dr. Epstein co-directs the Center for Communication and Disparities Research, and with me, he co-directs Mindful Practice in Medicine programs at the University of Rochester School of Medicine and Dentistry. He's a professor of family medicine, oncology, and medicine, a graduate of Wesleyan University and Harvard Medical School, and the recipient of numerous Lifetime Achievement Awards relating to communication and humanism, a Fulbright Fellowship in Barcelona, fellowships at the University of Sydney and the Brochure Foundation in Geneva, and the American Cancer Society's highest award, the Clinical Research Professorship. And now, our conversation with Dr. Ronald Epstein. What I'd like to do is begin with uh, a question that I'm I'm going to strive to ask all of our guests. Uh, it comes out of my experience uh, and all of a lot of our experiences with other health professionals as we begin to dig a little deeper into why they decided to go in the health professions. We often hear pretty uh, profound, sometimes um, poignant stories, narratives about their proximity to illness, to suffering, to life events like that, and how those have impacted them, sometimes at a very, very early age. Sometimes it's not suffering, but it may be an encounter in the healthcare system that, you know, that did something emotionally, cognitively, physically to oneself. So I'd like you to just tell us a little bit about, we could call this our origin story in medicine, you know, what is your origin story? What, why did you, among all your many talents, and you have so many, why, why medicine? Why did this happen? What 
happened early in your life that has informed that in a, in a profound and lasting way. Yeah, well, thank you. Um, how many hours do you have? <laughs> so, I mean, if you want to go way back, um, as a child, I was quite, quite sickly, nothing serious, but things enough to keep me at home a lot. Uh, so, and to see doctors pretty frequently. I had, I had asthma, I had recurrent ear infections, um, uh, and and it really actually did have an impact on my life, which I didn't realize until subsequently. I couldn't run when I was a child without coughing or getting out of breath, for example. So, um, and I remember, you know, really from a very young age, from when I was five or six, um, the kindness of physicians, uh, that how much that mattered. And just even, not even with the words that they said, because I probably didn't understand a lot of the words, but 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 their 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 sense of presence, the way that they touched me, uh, the way that they looked at me, um, and uh, and that really had a profound influence. Uh, and uh, and then my health improved when I was about uh, nine or ten or eleven. And but in the process, I became very interested in how people get sick and what happens, and would read encyclopedia entries about illness and. Um, and it wasn't kind of in a morbid way, it was a really curious way about um, how do people live their lives when they're compromised in some way, and we all are. Um, the other thing that I discovered with my asthma at a quite a young age, I must have been seven or eight, is that if I could lie down very still and, and breathe shallowly, so kind of be really aware of my breathing, that it would make, uh, it initially was difficult to do, but then eventually I realized that I wouldn't be coughing and I wouldn't be feeling short of breath. So there was some sense of control that I felt that I had over the illness. And now this was the 19, early 1960s. So there, the treatments for asthma were terrible. There were no inhalers. There were, you know, just these drugs that made you jittery. And, um, you know, now it would be very different. But in those days, um, so that ability to be involved in my own care and to, you know, heal myself in a certain way, I think was also pretty fundamental. So that's kind of the early stuff. And then the, I was kind of vacillating between being a musician and being a physician. I mean, ultimately I decided to be both, um, but, you know, which to put forward and which to make my living at. But in my process of going to getting interested in, in healing, it was kind of a circuitous route that kind of take, took me through Zen training to understanding the kind of oriental medicine, Chinese medicine theory and practice. I studied shiatsu and acupuncture and and then had this delusional belief that if I really wanted to be a healer, I should go to medical school. Um, and or I don't know, I mean, just kind of a, you know, tongue in cheek, but um, but in medical school itself, I didn't find much about healing. Uh, I found a lot about diseases and curing and uh, and protocols and techniques, um, but I didn't find a lot about healing. So felt I was still kind of on my own to to discover that and how to synthesize my own personal experiences and my experiences with with Buddhism and with Chinese medicine and Western medicine. And that took a while. That took a while after I finished medical school, probably, I think it was kind of a 10-year trajectory for me. So that's kind of the beginnings. Okay. 
Yeah. You know, in, in that beginning story that is still active now, you talk about presence, um, describing that experience as a young asthmatic and that sense of presence and kindness, which may be a surrogate word or, or a qualifier or an adjective to go along with presence. And I'll just jump right to your landmark article in 1999 in JAMA called Mindful Practice, in which you outlined these qualities of the exemplary clinicians that came out of your, your own experience, your own observations, attentive observation, beginner's mind, critical curiosity, and presence. Can you just speak a little bit more about presence? And you can include aspects of those other qualities, and especially maybe the examples of times and moments that you've felt it very, very palpable in your own work as a physician, but also as a patient, and also times in which it hasn't been there that's, you know, kind of in some ways motivated you to uh, include this in, in the canon of what uh, you teach. I, I think presence is always present, but it comes in different flavors. So there's the, you know, kind of sense of resonance and deep connection with individuals. And that happens some of the time. And it's it's, it's really delicious when that happens. It, it's, it's, uh, it's something to savor. And sometimes that can happen in a moment of silence. Sometimes it can happen when... You know, when each of us feels that we've been seen and understood, but it's um, it's something that is not embodied in me as a person and it's not embodied in the other person, but it somehow occupies the space between us. And and so I call that shared mind um, that 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 sense. It's not that you agree on everything or see the world in the same way, but you have this capacity to experience the other and feel experienced by the other. So it's, it's kind of this mutual process. But there, there are times when, you know, I feel misunderstood and patients feel misunderstood and that connection doesn't feel quite that exquisite. And that, that second kind of presence is a moving toward, is it's not, it's not always delicious, but it's um, recognizing that there is a gap or a gulf and it can be because of you know life experience it can be called be because of culture it could be because of any number of things but but i think that presence that intention to move toward another is another kind of presence that we have to cultivate and often cultivate very quickly in our practice i'm just thinking about you know after this interview, I'm going to be talking with an emergency room physician who's a mentee. And, um, and you know, in the emergency room, you have to establish that moving towards that, that, that uh, very quickly. I mean, you only have a very short amount of time and you know that your relationship is very time limited. So that's a second kind. And then I think it comes in words, but also in physicality to it and often i feel the greatest sense of presence when i'm when i'm touching a patient when i'm examining them and even procedures even injecting a arthritic shoulder with with a steroid i can feel this sense of presence it's kind of a bodily uh experience it's not, it's not just an emotion uh, emotional experience it's very it has a real physicality to it and so i i think uh, you know now i'm just 
really exploring those different flavors of presence and and trying to you know understand what each one is like what happens to you when when you uh, are really experiencing that as a clinician as a physician health professional how does that change the quality of your own experience of work yeah i think it's really integral to my identity as a healer so i feel that it's i I have this sense of yes this is the right place to be this is the right thing to be doing you know it's it's the right vocation it's the right action it's it just there's something very resonant about it Hmm. you feel very aligned in alignment one could say um attuned aligned Uh, you know when you're walking with someone and you have the same gait without even knowing it, you know, you're, you're stepping in, in, in sync with someone else. It's, it's, um, uh, so there's that sense of, of connection. So connecting that presence with those other qualities, attentive observation, critical curiosity, beginner's mind, and, you know, part of your life's work, especially more recently has been to help others, help your colleagues, um, cultivate those already inherent abilities that they have as human beings and especially as trained health professionals. And this podcast is called Flourishing in Medicine, something that you've written about, something that you've studied, something that you're very interested uh, in promoting. And uh, maybe you can help us and help our listeners understand what does that mean even, flourishing? Can you define what flourishing in medicine looks like and maybe a little bit of contrast with what it doesn't look like. <laughs> yeah. I, th- I think that for me, when I feel that I'm flourishing, the I'm able to get a perspective on the things that are unpleasant about my work and put them in their place. I mean, we all know all of the drivers of burnout and distress and moral distress in, in medicine. And when I feel that I'm flourishing, I know all of that. I know that medicine is difficult and that health systems are broken and all of that. And at the same time, I feel like I'm doing the work that is giving something important to the world and also providing a sense of meaning for myself. So it's that it's that it's kind of the opposite of denying that there's distress or denying that there's joy. There's both. It's kind of kind of taking in the whole picture the beautiful and the ugly at the same time. I'm a great fan of Walt Whitman's poetry. And one thing that I like about it, I mean, there are all sorts of things, but first of all, it's sensual. Um, and, And I think that medicine is a highly sensual profession. We're using all of our senses all of the time. The second is that that it's full of contradiction. Things are, uh, going well and they're going terribly often at the same time that uh, people are suffering and they're healing at the same time so taking in these opposites without needing to erase one or the other so um, it's almost kind of um, kind of an electric kind of a buzz feeling that I get when I'm in that state of I guess it's kind of radical acceptance of the way the world is, but that's what drives my passion to make the world better. I don't know if that makes sense to you. 
So without the acceptance, there wouldn't be the drive. Mm-hmm. You know, everything was beautiful and everything was horrible, or everything was horrible. But it's that tension, it's that dynamic tension, that um, that provides the the engine for me. And you know, maybe this goes back to your origin story. How how is it that you have felt yourself drawn to be right in the middle of that dynamic tension? And maybe maybe a, a, a better question is. Why does being in the middle of the dynamic tension, if it does, give you such sense of meaning and joy yeah. in your work? Well, uh, as you know, um, I was in primary care for 35 years or so. And also for the past, what is it now, 17 years, I've done palliative care in the hospital, in a tertiary care hospital. And I really, I mean, they call me in not for ordinary situations. Usually it's when families need to make really difficult decisions about their loved one and they're kind of at each other's throats because they disagree and there's a lot of tension in the room. And I actually find this really energizing uh, because it's not a problem that can be solved, right? These are not problems that, that logic can solve. They're problems that you can grow through. And and if I feel that I'm growing through those problems with a family, with a contentious situation, then and I can see growth in others, uh, for me, that's really energizing. And uh, and so I see my job is not fixing things, but my job is helping people grow. It's kind of the difference between being a mechanic and being a gardener and mechanics fix things because machines usually don't fix themselves. But gardeners, you can't fix a plant. You know, you can't, you can't make a plant grow. You can provide the conditions under which they grow. And so you, we need both of that in, in, in medicine. We need you know, the mechanic part and the gardener part. I kind of feel like the mechanic part, I, I enjoy to a certain degree, but I also feel that that's not the thing that energizes me as much as the gardener part. Yeah, I'm, you know, I'm thinking about life, a statement, life is not a problem to be solved. It's something to, to be lived, to live within. And yet, on the other hand, uh, our training in some ways, it's been, it's difficult to include that uncertainty and chaos and all the problems that cannot be solved in medical training. It's, it's, it's difficult, I think, for educators to teach how to, be in the middle of that tension. You've you've done an amazing job at doing so. And that's just one of many challenges that face health professionals today. Maybe you can let us know what, what do you think are some of the other greatest challenges that health professionals face in terms of their ability to work with energy, compassion, uh, commitment, robustness, attention, uh, all the things that you've spoken about in the past. Yeah, um, I, I I want to start with my own personal experience of going through training and the early years of my career. I felt very much as an outsider, and I had really good friends in medical school, but they were also kind of at the periphery of medical culture. And unfortunately, I had enough of a life outside of medicine, mostly with musicians, that I had a you know good set of friends and support network, but I felt that within medicine, I just didn't fit. I've subsequently learned that probably a real lot of people in medicine don't feel like they fit. <laughs> and, and 
And it may even be the majority, which is kind of a problem, isn't it? Um, because the majority of us, I think, went into medicine for exactly the right reasons, that, that they wanted to help patients grow and flourish and live lives that they find meaningful, and also that they themselves wanted to draw meaning and a sense of purpose uh, from, from their own work. And, and yet the system is set up to undermine that in so many ways. And there are all sorts of words that we use to describe ourselves or that are used towards us that I think are kind of hurtful, like don't be over-involved, emotions aren't good, uh, you don't have time for this, uh, it's not going to be, you know, it's not, you can't bill for this, you can't. And those messages are, you know, are pervasive and if anything, getting worse. And so that disconnect between who I am as a person and this rather toxic world that I inhabit um, is really, really striking. And I'm just trying to put words to what the missing ingredient is. I think uh, there's a real difference between taking care of patients and caring for patients, okay, and, uh, and caring about patients. And, and um, you know, this goes back to Francis Peabody's, you know, famous lecture in 1927, and many people have said it in different ways. But I think the thing that's being erased in our healthcare system is this capacity to care about one another. And caring means not following rules when the rules are inadequate. Caring means making yourself vulnerable in a certain way uh, to help others. I think on an individual level, on a person-to-person level, that is rewarded. So most of my colleagues, when they go beyond the the call of duty, you know, I say thank you, and they say thank you to me when I do that. And those relationships are really, really important. But I have a sense that the institutions, and it's not even you know, sometimes individuals at the top, but but just institutional culture doesn't recognize that, and they pile more stuff that's meaningless on us. And there's this schism between what we see ourselves doing and what really matters just gets too great. Now we all find different ways of addressing that. So as an educator, I'm very clear with a student who's rotating with me on a rotation that that I'm interested in their personal experience of being a healer and not just whether they get the diagnosis right or choose the right treatment or even communicate well with a patient, all those are important. But I'll say my fundamental interest is that you become the healer that you can, that only you can be. I don't want you to copy what I'm doing. You might learn some things, but the, 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 long, the long-term goal is that you need to find those things that you say and do and believe that are going to give you a sustainable sense of purpose and meaning. And so part of our work together, even if we're just on a two-week rotation together, is to look at that as well as all these other skills that you that you have. I've yet to meet a student who hasn't reacted well to this. And also, you know, what they'll say uh, at the end of the rotation or in their evaluations was, I wish there were more of that in medical education. So 
I think the structure of medical education is too fragmented. There's no sense that there's one person who's got personal responsibility for you, your own growth throughout the four years. And there are different programs that, including at our medical school, which are very good advising and coaching programs. But I think that those longitudinal relationships really should need to be more at the core. I'd like to take a closer look, if we can, at two words, joy and meaning. Um, and if you could just talk a little bit about the importance, if you think it's important, because that's also reasonable thing to ask a question whether it is important, joy and meaning for the health professional, for the physician. Uh, if you could just talk a little bit about that, the importance of that and why. I do. I just want to kind of take apart the word joy um, because it, it means different things to different people. And for me, it, it's, the, it's, the, it's the part of joy that, that, that implies fulfillment, a sense of wholeness. And so when I walk out of one of those contentious family meetings on the palliative care service, you know, it's not it's not the jump for joy kind of joy. But I feel that I, I feel a sense of deep fulfillment that and also the word meaning, it's it's nothing that's hidden, you know, it's nothing that's to be discovered. Meaning is right there. You know, meaning is in the action, it's not a result of it. So I see them as kind of confluent. Uh, and that sense of fulfillment and that sense of meaning, you know, they 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 they're part they're part of the same thought. Why should why should um, say the general public be concerned about us finding meaning and joy in our work? Um, what I guess another way of putting that is what it's what is it, what is it like to be a patient of someone who isn't aligned in that way, and what's what's the alternative experience like to be aligned with? with that importance? And is that relevant to patient care and outcomes? I'll tell you from the perspective of a patient, um, I had to have surgery uh, last spring. And when I first met the surgeon, he was really preoccupied with electronic health record and barely looked at me and hadn't remembered that we had met three years previously uh, about a similar issue. After the surgery, he looked me in the eye and described some of the procedures he had to do as he said, you know, I know this is going to be, uh, the recovery will be a little rough for a few days. It's, it's almost inhumane, but you will feel better after a period of time. And just the fact that he was able to resonate with that feeling of utter helplessness and vulnerability and pain and discomfort and all of that. And, you know, it, He's not a warm, fuzzy person, but it was very clear to me that he truly understood and was present with what I was experiencing. And so that contrast, just even within an individual and context, I suspect that that first encounter we had was joyless for him and not very present for me. And I think at the with the second encounter, the, the surgery for him actually was challenging. It had some, there were some things that were that. Um, so I think for him, he um, that sense of connection reflected his sense of connection, probably with the technical part of his work, but also with the human part of the work. And I felt that. Mm. I felt that really clearly. And you know, my wife is a professional musician, and she talks about gigs that she goes on where everyone is really there, and then there, or other gigs that she's working where 
there are musicians who are just phoning it in. You know, they're just kind of playing along mechanically, doing their job, but there's no, they're elsewhere. You know, they're, and patients can tell if you're phoning it in, in a nanosecond. <laughs> uh, so, so the joy part, the the flourishing part, the the engagement part, you know, whatever word you want to use, the connection part, it's it's pheromones. It is um, it, it is the the way you smile. You know, if it's a sincere smile as opposed to a forced smile, um, and we are we we have to pick up on that quickly because you know that's how we tell whether someone's friendly or dangerous, or both. Right. And and um, and and so uh, I think it's integral that now now I think I want to separate this from if you think about joy as, you know, having lots of things and going on expensive vacations and belonging to golf clubs and, you know, you know, whatever. That's not the joy I'm talking about. And so the public should care less about that kind of stuff, but about having a doctor who's really flourishing, engaged joyous and present about the work that they're doing that's like that's what you look for yes i would agree 100 percent um so you know it, uh talking about joy it, it's was a joy when your um book attending medicine mindfulness and humanity really the first book about mindfulness and medical practice was published and reading it, it was joy to read it in your book you describe in the final chapter imagining a mindful healthcare system and I know the book was published seven years ago. It's been a while. But describe, if you can, two things and it's sort of a little bit uh, imagine journey for you. The first, your experience as a patient in an encounter, and you can choose any kind of encounter, within an imaginary healthcare system that was a mindful healthcare system, as you described in that chapter. Secondly, uh, describe what it would be like to be a physician working in that same setting in that imaginary mindful healthcare system. And and then third, I guess, what are some of the ways, the work we have to do to get there? Okay, yeah. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> As a patient, I think that, that that sense that even though talk time is limited, that this presence that I experience with a clinician is timeless. That time stands still. And we know that patients who really feel listened to also think that their visits with their doctor are longer. Their the psychological time is longer. So, so that sense of timelessness, that sense of really being listened to, uh, the sense that that you're not put in a category, that you're being treated as a as a unique individual. And I'll put along with that a sense of confidence that this other person, that this doctor knows what they're doing. Okay. So I don't want just someone who's, who's a good talker and really friendly. I want someone who knows their stuff. Right. And so, and how you communicate that you can communicate that in many ways, but trying to be arrogant and self aggrandizing is not one of them. So, um, so a certain, certain dose of humility as a physician, I would, want that everything that led up to the patient walking into the door, into my walking into the door of the examining room, uh, would put them in a receptive, relaxed, and fully aware state of being. <laughs> I know that's asking a lot, but, but whatever happens before you go into the room, 
makes you feel that you can be the person that you are and that you'll be accepted for for who you are and that that your the doctor's interest in you is a is a genuine one now you know obviously you know we see lots and lots of patients we can't be intimate in the same way with all the patients we see but but you can have a genuine interest in each person as a human being and recognize their uniqueness and then everything that happens after the visit reinforces the things that are the most important our chart notes in this country are eight times as long as the chart notes in any other country in the world and all of it is because of regulatory stuff right insurance companies government what have you and in the UK if a child has a sore throat your your note is two lines sore throat no fever no adenopathy you know follow up in a week or whatever it is uh, here it's eight pages um so so that kind of regulatory stuff that we have to deal with does not enhance anything that's important in medicine and most of it can be dispensed with with no harm to anybody just a little example so making communication among among clinicians easier you know you should have a sense that you're if you're seeing more than one doctor that they're actually able to communicate with one another and um my experience with relatives in other parts of the country trying to get medical care this it's horrendous you know and uh so and to think about just to ask oneself and even ask you know people who are non-clinicians but are healthcare administrators what is the most important thing what is the most important thing in healthcare and if people could actually have that question in front of them and direct their efforts towards the most important thing rather than oh i have to do this or i have to do that i mean it's probably good advice for life in general but be, be given that healthcare is such in such a mess i think we need to do that in a very conscious and deliberate way now all the details of the pathways to get there and who pays for what and how, you know who's responsible for what that's that that's that gets complicated and uh but i think that needs to be the starting point we're almost uh finished i just have two somewhat related questions i guess they're related just to finish up and then if there's any, anything else you'd like to add you know you have a, a great deal of experience in sharing uh, and motivating and inspiring other health professionals and physicians in particular to take a look at some of these issues to really think about what the most important thing is what if you were to sum it up in some recommendations either general or even specific to those whom you identify as your fellow health professionals what we, what would you offer here on this podcast to them just as a take home and then a related uh question or actually request is describe to us something that we've brought into our mindful practice training together which is a practice called 90 seconds for the patient if you could just describe that as something people can take home with them um first of all i want to say that mindfulness is not something you do sitting on a cushion or going to a retreat center mindfulness is how you live your life and and when we talk about mindful practice for health professionals um we're talking about how you live your life as a health professional so where can you but i i think that we also need reminders and so um to quote a zen teacher the uh, the most important thing is to remember the most important thing so part of the problem is remembering okay so so for me when I was in the depths of despair about the new electronic health record system a few years ago. 
a patient of mine said to me, I'd known him for quite some time, you know, part of why I really like you as a doctor is that you really take time to listen and I really feel understood. But ever since you got this new computer system, I feel like, you know, you've been really distracted by that. And, and I mean, he had a tremendous amount of courage to say that. And I just, it stopped me dead in my tracks. And, and I said, you know, you are absolutely right that this is not good for me, nor is it good for, for patients. And, and I thanked him. Uh, although for me, it kind of felt like someone just, you know, stuck a dagger through my heart, you know, it just was because this is what I aspired to do was to be present. And he was saying, no, you're not. Uh, so I just decided, I don't, you know, it just popped into my head, you know, saying, well, what can I do to make sure that I'm actually present and listening? So I just decided for every patient, for the first 90 seconds of a visit, I wouldn't open the electronic chart. I wouldn't have any notes. I would just sit there and talk with the patient, say, why are you here? What's what's going on? What's happened since last time? What's most important for you to talk about today? And just listen. And just listen. You know, ask maybe a few clarifying questions. I didn't quite understand what you said, or could you say a little bit more about that? But but just listen. So I, I would suggest trying that. See what it does for you. If 90 seconds seems really difficult, try start with 30. Okay. But um, see what that does, you know, to your practice. See what it does to the way you feel at the end of the day. See if it makes your day any longer. It might even shorten your day. It, for me, it actually hadn't had a, no effect on when I got home at night. And But for me, it gave me a greater sense of connection to the things that were, that were the most important. The other thing is to think about transitions. Um, so when you're going from one room to the next or one meeting to the next or one patient to the next, what can you do during that transition time? So if it involves a walk, can you walk and just notice your surroundings and maybe even notice something that's beautiful, even if it's a sterile hospital environment, there might be one thing that's beautiful. Or when you're about to enter a room, just stop and take a breath and, and just be aware of the thoughts and feelings you're carrying with you and make a decision about which ones you really need to carry with you into that room and which ones you don't. Not that you're saying they're not worth thinking about or feeling, but you know what's 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 most important right now. And so those are just two things. I mean, clearly we have to fix the system, but the system's never going to be perfect. It's never going to be anywhere near perfect. And so I feel like we all, to some extent, need to take some responsibility for our own sustainability, mostly because no one else will. I mean, it's really it's kind of a harsh reality. Others can help, they can support us, but I think fundamentally that we need to find some way of finding connection and meaning. Well, that's great. You know, I want to, again, thank you so much for uh, being interviewed or being on this podcast. And also, um, what's really wonderful is, you know, we've spent a lot of time together teaching, we we go to meetings together, planning, uh, but this was just such a lovely way for me to get to know a little bit more about you, things that I didn't really know. And I think the listeners will also appreciate learning about you as a person uh, and really as a force in helping physicians and other health professionals flourish. So thanks. Thanks for listening. We will include a summary of today's podcast and some links to Dr. Epstein and other references that were discussed in the show notes. I'd like to conclude today's podcast as I conclude each podcast with a practical exercise to help you flourish during your workday, 
The intention is for you to develop a toolbox of skills that you can draw upon to enhance purpose, meaning, and well-being. Ron spoke of 90 seconds for the patient. This is a practice for those of you who are engaged in clinical care to use at the onset of an encounter. As he said, perhaps begin with 30 seconds or 60 seconds, and as we advise in medicine, increase as tolerated. Another brief practice to do is a hand-washing practice. Everyone involved in clinical care washes their hands many times daily. It's not trivial. In fact, it's an important aspect of our work. Developing a habit of intentionality and presence can help the effectiveness of hand-washing at the same time cultivate presence. So let's talk about how you would do this. You, you begin washing your hands, turn on the water, you put some soap, either liquid or bar soap into your hands, and you begin to wash the hands, paying attention to what it feels like to have the water touch the hands, what it feels like to have the soap on the hands, what it feels like for you to um, spread the soap and the water around the hands, the palms, the backs of the hands, each finger, doing so with awareness, with the knowledge that this is an important part of the practice that you are actually taking care of yourself and taking care of others in the process of washing your hands. Be fully with the practice for as long as it takes. 20, 30, 60 seconds of hand washing can be a very effective way of decreasing the amount of germs on the hands and making your ability to work with patients more healthy as you conclude the washing of the hands, rinsing the fingers off, shaking the hands, and then taking whatever material you use to dry the hands or an automatic uh, air blowing dryer and noticing again the contact of the air, of the cloth, of the paper with the hands as you dry the hands. This can be done many times a day and the more attention we give to this, the better the outcomes of our hand washing is, and also the ability to be present with it, to use it as a way of dropping into this present moment, to what you are actually doing at this moment. One more thing I would like to share before we close is a poem I heard recently while listening to an interview by Tim Ferriss with the meditation teacher, Jack Kornfeld. Jack shared a poem by Jack Gilbert about a brief for the defense. Actually, the title of the poem is called A Brief for the Defense. Ron spoke early on in the podcast about joy in medicine in the midst of the contradictions and how joy is important for health professionals. I agree that our joy as health professionals is important, and I hope you find joy in listening to this poem. So here it is, A Brief for the Defense by Jack Gilbert. Sorrow everywhere, slaughter everywhere. If babies are not starving someplace, they are starving somewhere else with flies in their nostrils. But we enjoy our lives because that's what God wants. Otherwise, the mornings before summer dawn would not be made so fine. The Bengal tiger would not be fashioned so miraculously well. The poor women at the fountain are laughing together between the suffering they have known and the awfulness in their future, smiling and laughing while somebody in the village is very sick. 
There is laughter every day in the terrible streets of Calcutta, and the women laugh in the cages of Bombay. If we deny our happiness, resist our satisfaction, we lessen the importance of their deprivation. We must risk delight. We can do without pleasure, but not delight, not enjoyment. We must have the stubbornness to accept our gladness in the ruthless furnace of this world. To make injustice the only measure of our attention is to praise the devil. If the locomotive of the Lord runs us down, we should give thanks that the end had magnitude. We must admit there will be music despite everything. We stand at the prow again of a small ship anchored late at night in the tiny port looking over to the sleeping island. The waterfront is three shuttered cafes and one naked light burning. To hear the faint sound of oars in the silence as a rowboat comes slowly out and then goes back is truly worth all the years of sorrow that are to come. I hope you have found this podcast, the simple exercises, and this poem useful to you and look forward to having you join us for our next episode of Flourishing in Medicine, From Surviving to Thriving. For more information about MPRO, please visit www.myempro.com. For more information about me and my work, please visit www.mickkrasnermd.com or www.mindfulpracticeinmedicine.com. Thank you and see you next time.